Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is my friend and colleague, Dorothy Lund. Dorothy is an Associate Professor of Law at USC, and her work focuses on corporate law, corporate governance, and corporate finance. Today, we will be talking about her really exciting paper, Shareholders as Regulators. Hi, Dorothy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Felipe. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is really great. Thanks for being here. So uh, I want to start with the basics. Uh, I want to ask you about the title. What do you mean by shareholders as regulators? So what I mean by that is that I think shareholders and specifically three uh, large institutional shareholders are acting like regulators for the first time. And I think This is, if we look at what they're doing, uh, they're creating broad mandates that bind the market. They're uh, assessing compliance with these rules that they're adopting, and then they're doling out co uh, consequences. So, and I mentioned that I'm talking really about three uh, shareholders in particular, the big three uh, institutional shareholders that primarily invest in index funds. Uh, and these are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. And uh, what makes this dynamic, I think, really interesting and new is just the their growth over the past uh, few decades, attributable actually to the rise of index investing. And it's made them uh, extremely, extremely powerful. They control, uh, you know, on average, 20% of the S&P 500 equity. The extent of their influence is even greater when you remember that not everybody shows up to vote their shares. Some estimate that it's as high as 25 or 30%. They're actually uh, together able to determine the outcome of 65% of corporate governance proposals that are brought at S&P 500 companies. So uh, as a result of sort of these trends that I'm happy to say more about, um, including the rise of indexing, uh, we're seeing these large institutional behemoths that uh, have stakes across the public equity market, large stakes across the public equity market, and they're able to wield uh, power in a really uh, big way. Great. So can I ask you a bit about how this, do you see that this trend continuing, which is to say, do you think that the big three will continue to become more and more relevant and powerful in kind of the American corporate landscape? Yes, I do. I, I think that this trend is, is showing no sign of slowing. And, and just to give you a sense of how this trend line it has gone, in, in 1998, the big three held about 5% um, of the S&P 500. So, you know, they were They were large shareholders, but not uh, not anything close to what they are today. And you know, all of the things that have uh, contributed to their influence, you know, investor appetite for index funds, the way that we regulate retirement savings um, in the U.S. All of these things uh, are going to continue to push people into index funds, uh, and it's going to continue this trend towards larger and larger growth. I think by some estimates, actually the very founder of Vanguard, the, the, you know, who, the creator of the first index fund, had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago where he said he, um, he predicted that uh, it, it, within a decade or, or so that uh, index funds would control the majority of equity in the United States. And, and you know, this would be obviously a huge problem for a number of reasons. Um, so yes, to, to answer your question, I think that uh, people agree that this at some point will probably reach some leveling off, but I don't think we're close to that point yet. 
And that's that's really interesting. And do you do we have a sense of what explains the relevance of index funds? So I, I would assume it's a combination. You already mentioned some reasons, but I would assume it's a combination of market factors and also legal or regulatory factors, right? Yeah. So why why people uh, why all of a sudden people like index funds as much as they right. do? It's, right. it's an interesting uh, question because you know. Back in the 70s, when when Jack Bogle invented the first index fund, it actually had a lot of intellectual support. Um, Richard Posner and Bill Landis had a, an article uh, saying that index investing was was the only way to go. But investors hadn't really uh, noticed up until maybe a, a decade or so ago when people started to really uh, subscribe to this. And we started to see a lot of people pulling their money out of actively managed mutual funds and moving to index funds. And I think the reason why is they're actually, you know, they're great for investors. You're given the opportunity to secure really broad diversification for an extremely low cost because the index fund, unlike an actively managed fund, isn't out there engaging in stock picking. And I think the research is pretty good at this point that stock picking, because it's costly, is unable, unlikely to add a lot of value, maybe once in a while, but not on average. Um, so, you know, as investors have sort of figured this out, oh, you can get broad diversification and, and pay very low fees. Uh, with index funds, we're seeing more and more money leaving actively managed funds and moving into these index funds. And that, because this also another feature of this that's sort of interesting and, and weird, the index fund market is extremely extremely uh, concentrated. 80% of the market is held by the big three. Uh, so all this money is really facilitating this growth of these three um, institutional investors. So one kind of like one big claim that you have in the paper is uh, that the big three are exercising a regulatory power. And I'm sure some people will be a bit surprised by that idea. So You've already hinted a bit at, at, at the fact that they are basically imposing certain standards and norms and rules that that companies have to follow if they want to receive the investment of these index funds or if they want to keep it. But why do you think this is a strange phenomenon or something that should give us some pause or that should lead us to to focus our attention on it? Yeah, so I think this is different. This regulatory dynamic is is different for a few reasons. One, um, you know, I, I think of it as uh, being very much a sign of our times, not just because we now all of a sudden have these large institutional shareholders that wield all this power, but also because we have these perceptions of uh, government failing, dissatisfaction with government. Um, and so I think people are, you know, uh, demanding that private actors uh, issue rules uh, for the first time. So I think of this as being a sort of interesting demand-driven privatization dynamic, uh, again, with the, the target being shareholders, uh, which is in itself different. And I think one of the other things that I think makes this really, um, you know, worthy of our attention is that the scope of the rules that they can adopt, you know, the breadth of their influence is, is potentially the entire public market. So, you know, thousands and thousands of companies in 84 different jurisdictions for BlackRock, uh, just to take one example. And, and, you know, for other private regulators that wield a lot of power, like stock exchanges, for example, you know, their rules tend to be focused on corporate governance. Um, we don't think of them making rules about, you know, climate change risk, uh, workplace inequality, things like that, you know, and, and with 
what we've seen the big three do is begin to tackle all sorts of different things, things that uh, are there's no really limit to the types of areas that they can um, uh, intervene on, which I think, you know, just just crystallizes how much power they have and how much influence. Um, and the last thing I think that's sort of different, and I think this is a question that we'll have to confront, you know, as this dynamic continues, is that other private regulators in the United States who are much less influential um, are subject to some government oversight. Uh, you know, stock exchanges, they have to submit the rules to the SEC for approval, um, uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. Whereas the big three are sort of operating completely on their own. There's a fiduciary duty to use their governance rights in a way that benefits investors. Um, and they have to disclose how they voted um, in any given uh, proxy season. But that's it. There's no other oversight of how they're making their rules or, or, or why. Um, so again, I think this is this is different than uh, and especially striking when we remember just how the scope of their power over the market and the breadth of their rules. How is this different slash related to kind of the more traditional phenomenon of shareholder activism? It, it is very much related. And I think what this is, is a, a form of activism. Um, the, the thing, I think, again, that makes this different is when in a typical shareholder activist campaign, you have a single target um, and uh, you know, maybe there's a gadfly shareholder who's bringing a shareholder proposal on climate change at Exxon, or maybe there's an activist hedge fund who wants to wage a proxy contest at, you know, a big company like Apple. Um, and, and the thing that makes, feels regulatory about this to me is what you see the big three doing is rather than just saying, oh, we're going to, you know, engage with companies on various specific issues. What, what we see them doing is they say, well, we have a rule that we, we want to apply across the market. Um, we think, you know, uh, a company should have at least two female directors. And then we are going to, much like a regulate, you know, a government regulator would, we have our, our mandate. We're going to then look at companies, assess compliance, and we're going to follow up um, with penalties if we see non-compliance. Uh, so rather than sort of targeted uh, activism that we think is more of the bread and butter of a typical shareholder activist, we see again this, this sort of like rulemaking process that's happening with these large institutional investors that they're applying these broad mandates like, like the SEC might, the EPA might, uh, across all of the firms in their you know, very broad portfolios. So let's, let's get a little more into the Paper. So in the paper, you give a couple of examples of these regulatory powers. So can you walk us through those examples and why you think they highlight this phenomenon that you are discussing? Yeah, sure. So um, there are two that I think are particularly compelling. And the first is board diversity, which I just briefly mentioned. And as a bit of background, you know, for years, um, people, including regulators, academics, large investors had sort of saw this, the horrible state of diversity in um, corporate America and the C-suite and the uh, and corporate boards and said, we really need this to change. And yet there was n n very little progress. The average number of female directors in any given um, S&P 500 company was stable at just under 20% uh, for years. And so in 2017, State Street did something a little different. They you know took, took a, on a regulatory role they uh, adopted this uh, policy, which said 
if you have an undiverse board, uh, we are going to target the nominating, uh, the chair of the nominating committee, and we will vote against them. And so in that subsequent proxy season, they voted against hundreds of different directors. Of course, this very much caused companies to focus on this issue when they really weren't before. BlackRock and Vanguard followed on shortly thereafter. And empirical research has shown that this was actually very effective, that companies added two and a half times as many female directors in 2019 as compared to 2016. Uh, so again, you can see there's this rule-like statement, there's assessment of compliance, enforcement, and influence. And um, I'll just briefly mention the other sort of regulatory area that I think is very interesting, and this has to do with climate risk. So in the la over the last few years, there's been growing awareness uh, that climate risk is a real problem. And at the same time, we saw, you know, deregulatory push by uh, the Trump administration. Uh, you, the United States left the Paris Agreement at one point. And so uh, BlackRock at, at this time is the leader in 2020, publishes this CEO letter that always gets a lot of attention and completely centered it around climate issues and clearly said, we have expectations for portfolio companies that they will disclose sustainability information uh, consistent with certain guidelines, SASB to, to be specific, uh, to be particular. Um, we also want to see disclosure of your climate related risks. We want to understand your plans uh, for operating under a scenario where the Paris Agreement's goal of, of uh, limiting global warming is, is realized. And so they, and then they said in all bold, we will vote against you if you're non-compliant. And uh, they did, but they followed uh, that up with a lot of votes against directors, a lot of votes in, in favor of shareholder proposals. Vanguard and State Street uh, followed up with similar policies afterwards. And again, we saw a lot of we saw that this was influential. There's a strong negative association between the big three ownership and their subsequent carbon emissions. We've seen a lot of increased climate disclosure since these policies have been adopted. So again, you can see the issuance of rules, assessments of compliance, enforcement, and influence. I, th I think in both cases, if I heard correctly, BlackRock is the first mover, right? State Street was the first one um, for board diversity. Oh, and in, in climate, it was BlackRock. Exactly. And in both cases, what we see is that one of the three is the first mover, and then the other two follow very quickly what they're doing, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And what do you think explains the fact that they act in... Uh, uh, in the same way, right? So one way one might think about this, so we're going to get into your model of why why they are acting in this way in general. But I was thinking, you know, if they're responding to a demand from investors, right? And there are three distinct actors, like one strategy might be for each of them to promote policies that appeal to a specific sector of 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 investors, right? Does that make sense? I mean, yes. because it seems like in both cases, it's like one moves and the other two very quickly follow suit. Whereas I could imagine, uh, a, like, like we don't live in an ideal world, right? So a lot of investors probably don't like corporate diversity initiatives. And a lot of investors probably are more skeptical about climate change or about policies to counteract it. So I, I was wondering when you were talking about this, whether... What, why don't we see like one kind of black ship uh, member of the big three who is appealing to these perhaps not majoritarian investors, 
but nevertheless significant, uh, at least in a country like the U.S. Why isn't that the kind of rational strategy kind of to get some competitive edge saying we're doing something different? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment as to why they've all chosen the same things and why we don't have, you know, Vanguard coming out and saying, well, we are the, you know, (laughs) we are the anti-climate, we are the (laughs) pro-economy, you know, um, institution and we, we are opposing climate change measures. So, um, I don't know, something like that. Um, and there are, uh, there are investment vehicles for people with different preferences that exist sort of anti ESG, um, funds. Um, but I think, you know, the reason why we've seen so much, uh, common ground here has to do with my model for why, uh, why these policies come to be. And, you know, my theory to, to preview is that, um, or to just get into it, is uh, that these institutions, as profit ma- maximizing institutions, are are acting based on what their client clients demand of them, um, what their client, you know, what's going to maximize support from their clients, and because, you know speaking to some of these, the people at these institutions, they all emphasize this to me. They're like, we, you know, everything, everybody's our client, you know, it's tons of people, it's governments, it's public pensions, it's companies. Um, so I think there's a, a tremendous amount of overlap in between each of these institutions and who their clients are. Um, and so this also gets again about to why, you know, why certain policies are chosen. I think you know, these, the big three, given this interest in, in appeasing clients or at least satisfying them, uh, satisfying them or not alienating them, I should say, uh, they wait until policies have a huge amount of support from the market. You know, it's uncontroversial today to say that climate change is a huge risk. It's uncontroversial to say that corporate board should be more diverse. Pretty much everyone you ask would agree with those statements. So these are not, even though these at, at first blush, you might say, oh, wow, this is really cool. This is really, you know, uh, radical even. What they're doing is actually pretty tepid. And then they're waiting until um, the market sort of brings about consensus on these issues. And so that they know they're not, you know, their clients will support it. They won't get any blowback. And um, because they all have the same clients, I think that's my best guess as to why, or you know, the same types of clients. That's my best guess as to why uh, the policies look the same. You know, the, the, there is an interesting difference in one of the institutions is uh, a first mover, um, and you know, like you mentioned, State Street was the first mover on gender. The other ones followed right afterwards um, on for climate. It was BlackRock. Um, so. You know, it's the, there's a, another issue here, which is how what induces a comp, uh, one of the big three to 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 select an issue and move on it. Um, but the fact that the other ones are following on, you know, it suggests that they're worried about client, you know, client loss or client rea- negative client reactions. Um, once another, you know, if BlackRock has a policy on climate and Vanguard doesn't. They're worried that there something bad will happen. They'll lose clients. Maybe the government will look at them askance, uh, and so they follow on very quickly. Another question I have is: Okay, let's assume this is driven by demand from investors, but investors in index funds are also consumers, right? They are also investors in other vehicles or like uh, autonomous, like solo investors in some cases. And so what 
thing I was wondering is why are the big three the vehicle for implementing this change that, uh, as, you, as, as your model suggests, and I think this is right, like an overwhelming majority of the market wants, right? Because right. if an overwhelming majority of the market wants this, you, I mean, it's at least plausible to think that there would be another mechanism that would achieve this instead of the big three. So why are the big three kind of the vehicle that allows for this implementation? Yeah, this is this is a great question. Um, and, and, you know, I think just to be more um, precise about your um your statement that their investors are the ones that are pushing for this. You know, I would I would say actually, you know, it's I would call it clients because um, some of the clients are individual investors. Other, I think this is it's important to emphasize who their clients are because some are um, actually corporations, uh, corporations who are looking, you know, for places to advisors to manage their four hundred one k assets. Um, so, you know, they are working for corporate America. They're working for individual investors. They're working for public pension funds that are also looking for advisors, you know, CalPERS, CalSTRS, um, sovereign wealth funds come to BlackRock, um, people like you and me. And when it's a huge, it's a huge number of people that they're, they're, uh, uh, that are make up the source of their AUM, which is how they make money. Um, but it's an interesting question about, you know, why do each of these groups uh, try to achieve these in this way. And, you know, I think my, my gut reaction is that it, that this is not the exclusive, um, mode of influence. For example, the corporations that I think substantially influence these policies are also working through their advocacy groups, the business Roundtable, for example, um, chamber of commerce. Um, and so, so there's there, this is, I think not viewed as the only way, um, but at the same time, I think there's this growing consensus that uh, the big three have this power. They have this influence in governance. How are they going to use it? There's a lot of eyes on them, a lot of expectations. Um, and so in this sort of open, you know, new new world of having these just giant institutional behemoths who didn't exist 20 years ago to the same degree, um, it's, it's, I think a lot of people are looking at them to uh, respond to problems. And it's, you know, I, I thought this was, has been an unusual thing for a while. Um, it seems like any, any thing that you think should happen in the world, there is a paper or a group of academics or policymakers that think that it's the perfect thing for institutional investors to handle. And I think it's, you know, people see this concentration of power and, um, you know, to your point, these, a lot of these clients are, are, individual investors with jobs that care about the economy, they care about the environment. So uh, there's a world in which maybe the incentives are pretty good for them to take on some of this stuff. Um, so yeah, that's a, a, a long answer to your, your question, but I think, I think this is the, this is the key issue. Great. So imagine <laughs> this is going to be an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So imagine you were, kind of, um, you know, a very, I'm not going to say conservative because that's not the right word, a very right-wing person concerned about what some people in the right call uh, woke capitalism, right? The idea that there's a hegemonic view in, um, in corporate America and in, like in the professional class 
Does your model suggest that if they want to achieve change, what they should do is they should create their own version of one of the big three, that it should be the, the big three and the maybe the, the fourth, <laughs> and that the fourth would be a vehicle for these perhaps minority preferences in, in, in the marketplace, but still perhaps representative of a non-negligible slice of the population in the U.S. I mean, like one immediate worry I have about this is that it immediately starts tainting investment decisions uh, with a with a more severe or significant weight, right? Which is they start becoming about the changes that you want to see implemented in the world, and and they're not the traditional mechanism for achieving that, right? So uh, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a two part question. So one is. Do you think there's a market opportunity for the right-wing version of the big three? <laughs> And the second question is, uh, do you worry about that? Do you worry about political disagreement being channeled through investment uh, mechanisms? Yeah, so the, um, great questions. I, you know, I think the market opportunity one is interesting, I, you know, the and it goes to this sort of weirdness of this market. Um, The fact of the matter is, is that it's so oligopolistic because of, you know, lots of reasons, economies of scale and scope uh, that make it really hard for entrants to, uh, to break in and compete with the big three. Um, so I don't think, I don't think you're going to see a new um, index fund provider, uh, you know, come and start taking a lot of uh, uh, market share. Uh, just because, again, because of the nature of the market, um, I do think that there are there is this you know growing world in which people want to invest consistent with their values, and um, you know there's you know this is in some ways an old old you know divestment movements have been around for a while. You want to hold companies that are consistent with what what you think, but there's also this sort of newer thing which is like you want your company you want to change your companies to be closer um, to what your values are. So, you know, I'm, uh, instead of selling my shares of Exxon, maybe I want to hold and then make, you know, the person uh, who's managing my governance rights, uh, take these steps to make Exxon, uh, you know, better on renewable energy and reduce its global footprint and all of that. Um, and so uh, by that same token, I, you know, as I mentioned, there are these new ESG funds that uh, sort of do the, the opposite of ESG stuff. They say, you know, we're going <laughs> to, We're going to sort of take the right wing position on some of these on some of these issues, um, and so you know I think yes I think there is a market opportunity for people of all sorts of value you know that hold different values to to, to seek out investment you know vehicles that are consistent with their values. Um, I think one of the uh, things that I just feel more strongly about after taking on this project is that I think even when we think that. You know, I think at first blush, we look at what the big three are doing and we say, wow, this is woke capitalism. This is, this is you know, left-wing um, uh, sort of policies being uh, pushed on the world. And actually, I think, you know, the, 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 the ESG movement is actually not as radical as, as, uh, as all that. You know, it's, it's still, um, it, you know, the, the, the rationale for ESG is that thinking about the environment, thinking about society is actually important to make shareholders rich. Um, so, you know, an ESG investment vehicle, 
is not out there saying, oh, let's let's pay workers more um, in ways that are going to harm shareholders. It's, it's still consistent with this sort of shareholder primacy, sort of traditional, um, you know, view in, in corporate law um, that, you know, really isn't very uh, what I would call, you know, woke or radical or. Um, and so, you know, it'd be interesting to see if if maybe some of the uh, maybe we'll get even more. <laughs> uh, more products in, in, in that go further than that, you know, and this is, you know, funds that promise to do uh, things that would actually harm shareholder value in the service of society. Um, but we haven't really seen, we've, I, I, I don't know much of that um, that is going on either. Great. That, that's super useful. Uh, I mean, so it seems right. So I was just voicing kind of like cons- concerns people of the, from the right might have about this, phenomenon, right, which I, I was imagining might move them to try to come up with their own index fund. But as you said, that seems unlikely given the market structure <laughs> and the size that is required and so on. You could also have kind of a, a, a what I would think is like the view that the people actually making these decisions in the big three think, which is, you know, we have some power, there's some demand, and then they seem like reasonable changes. So we might as well use our power in a way that uh, is good for, our, you know, that aligns with the preferences of of our clients and that seem plausible positions like fight climate change or increase corporate diversity. But there's also another critique, which you already hinted at, which is questioning the 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 honesty or the, 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 the goodwill behind the, the posture, which is the view of I would, I'm almost tempted to call it a bit Marxist, which is to say, this is just ideology. This is just uh, window dressing. They're always going to pursue whatever uh, policies will maximize the profit of their clients and their own profit. And if the good policies from some normative standpoint align with that, they'll go with that. But if the policies are really bad, but they will be... Uh, you know they're they're not good from a social perspective, but they align with the preferences of the of the investors. Well, that's what they're going to do, and so they might be a very strong force for evil outcomes too. So I wanted to move more to this question of evaluation. So how how do you think we should think about this? Uh, you know what are uh, you know to, to try to voice both sides here? What do you think are the potentially good things of this phenomenon? What do you think are the risks or the dangers? Yeah, so I'll, let me go in opposite order because I think you raised some really compelling uh, reasons to be concerned about this. Um, and you know, I think exactly as you said, when we understand this, is why I think it's so important to understand the incentives that shape what they're doing, because other people have have offered different theories um, that would would bring about different normative implications, and I think remembering that these are profit maximizing institutions that are ultimately choosing policies based on what their clients want and that their clients, yes, they're, they have lots and lots of clients all over the world, but you know, in the investors, people that invest are wealthier than non-investors. Um, you know, this is by no means, is this a, a, a democratic, uh, a mechanism, uh, the rules that they adopt, you know, are not necessarily going to further the public interest. I think there is this, separate constraint on what they're doing, which is that, um, and Jeff Schwartz has written about this and uh, Mark Rowe, you, you know, that 
these large asset managers have a lot of eyes on them right now. They are concerned about uh, government backlash for what they're doing. Um, so I think that suggests that they're unlikely to do things that are really antisocial. Um, so this is not, you know, I think I'm not so concerned about um, them acting extremely badly just because if that were to happen, well, then certainly uh, the regulators that, that regulate their own activities would come down on them. Um, but at the same time, you know, if we look at the, the, the rules that they adopt, um, you know, okay, you need to have one director, one female director on a board. Is that is that really as far as we should be going? You know, given that the workforce force is uh, more than 50% female, um, it, you know, is is the best way to avert climate change to have um, disclosure uh, and under the framework that they chose? Uh, what's the right amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that that would help us avert it? Um, are they are they picking these rules? you know, well, no, they're not picking these rules to maximize the public interest. Um, we could have a whole conversation about where the, whether the government is either. Um, but, you know, the, they certainly are not. They're for-profit asset managers. So I think, it, it, you know, we can we might be worried about the content of the rules. And I think the big concern that I have is if the rules aren't necessarily those that are going to go as far as they might need to, um, to address these problems head on. Um, well, how does this dynamic affect the other regulator in town, the you know the government? Um, and there, there is the argument that I think is quite compelling that if uh, private actors are perceived to be tackling these problems themselves, well, there's less pressure on government to respond with its own rules. Um, and so a couple of people have made this argument, including one of BlackRock's um, uh, executives for sustainability who quit and wrote a big letter in, um, I think it was the Daily Mail, saying, you know, I think that this is a deadly distraction what BlackRock is doing. So, uh, you know, to me, those are large concerns. I think on the other side of the ledger, um, you know, people who are optimistic about this. And there are many people who, who feel excited about this dynamic. And I think they're coming from a place of, again, sort of dissatisfaction with government. The idea that we've got these pressing problems that uh, government isn't solving and it's getting so bad that we really need all hands on deck. Um, and so, well, we should celebrate having um, powerful actors who, who seem to be doing good work. You know, we're talking emissions reductions, greater disclosure of risk, um, uh, greater diversity. I mean, that's all good stuff. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways in which, you know, this is, a, this is a cool regulatory tool that could maybe be harnessed. I think in my mind, though, the important thing to emphasize for, for you know, there's all sorts of limits as well. Um, the important thing to emphasize is that these tools should be viewed, you know, government regulation and shareholder regulation should be viewed as uh, complements rather than substitutes for one another. So, so let me go to the concerns that you voice. So it seems to me there are like two big distinct concerns, right? So one concern seems to be that the policies will just be like a cooptation strategy, right? From corporate right. America. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm putting it too bluntly, but basically that, you know, there's this demand for more diversity in the workplace and particularly in the higher, uh, levels of corporate power in the US. There's also a demand for greater sustainability in in the activities of firms and companies, given the climate crisis. And that 
because of those concerns, there is a genuine risk for uh, companies that profit from or have adjusted to this way of operating that the government might impose significant constraints on what they can do. And so that through this mechanism, basically corporations can demand, corporations, corporations and other clients can demand from the big three to implement policies that will co-opt that demand, that will seem to satisfy it. So to kind of, uh, as you say, remove some of the pressure for the government to act. And so delay rather than increase social change, right? That's one concern. Right. And that's kind of an empirical question, right? It's, I mean, it's hard to answer in the abstract whether, whether in net it's more a force towards social progress or that... Uh, stops social progress. But there's this other concern that I think you also voiced, which is, look, independently of the outcome, there's something troubling about these decisions being made in this, um, in this way, right? It doesn't seem democratic, right? So you say, you know, not everyone's voice is represented in these decision-making mechanisms. It's actually the voice of those whose interests are served by the big three. And so do you think... And this is kind of asking you to take up more of a position mm -hmm. on this, maybe more than what you're comfortable to do, given that you're just starting to study the phenomenon. But I wonder if you think there's something that we should be worried about, even if we happen to like the outcomes, right? Or we think uh, they might be advancing good causes, even if not as fast as we want them. It's just a tool that we might use, and they're using them in at least a way that doesn't seem clearly detrimental. Uh, do you think we should still be worried because of these democratic concerns or concerns about um, you know, what's the right venue to implement these really sweeping policies that affect corporate behavior? Yeah, no, this is this is a great this is a great thought. And I think you're right, because the, the, the concentration of power in itself um, is problematic, uh, I think, just on its face. And and John Coates has a an essay where he, he talks about this um, a bit, he calls it the problem of 12 and basically says, you know, the way we're going in not, not so long, um, all corporate America is going to be controlled by 12 people. Uh, and I think on, on first principles, that just seems problematic in itself. Um, and, you know, I think in sort of in terms of I, I think, you know, my theory suggests that there are practical checks on how bad it can go. Um, but, you know, we could we could tell a dystopian story where, you know, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, is no longer subject to those market constraints because he's about to retire um, or he's running for president or something uh, and, and begins to wield power um, and, you know, not subject to the constraints, uh, even those those constraints that that. Uh, I was talking about before, and we might see, you know, real antisocial exercise of power. Um, so, yeah, I think whenever you see a lot of power um, over the market, uh, at, at bottom, I think understanding, you know, just uh, to me, it, it makes it even more compelling to try to understand why this is happening, um, why we're getting these rules, and um, you know, what kind of outcomes we could possibly expect. I'd love, you know, Felipe, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, because um, I know there's a, a great literature um, in political philosophy on this. And uh, yes, would just would be well, would welcome your thoughts. 
Yeah, so um, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely it definitely seems troubling, right? So from the perspective that they just have this gigantic power, which might be partially checked by the market, but as you say, it's not fully checked, right? Uh, you know, if they implement good policies, it seems like they're just like benevolent dictators in a way, <laughs> right? They're 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 exercising this arbitrary power in a good way, but. But that's not the main concern about arbitrary power. It's the fact that it's arbitrary that should uh, make us concerned. I mean, one last question that I wanted to ask you, uh, which is connected to this in a way, is, as you probably know, there's this broad uh, movement of uh, kind of neo-Brandesian antitrust that, that says, you know, antitrust should not be dominated anymore just by a narrow concern on consumer welfare but it should also look at dynamics of power in the marketplace. So do you think part of the problem here is too a problem of the competitive or, or, or not really competitive structure of the market in which the big three are operating? So to what extent do you think the solution, to the extent that we think this is problematic, which I think on balance, it seems that it might be, uh, the solution is an antitrust solution, or do you think that the solution might also be kind of a corporate law solution? Yeah, so uh, this is a, a great question, and and you know people have looked at this, the rise of the big three um, as an antitrust problem in, in a specific way that's a little different than this. But the the thought is is that you know if you are a universal owner, you own the whole market, you own. Um, you know, you own Apple and all of its competitors. So what's your incentive? Well, it's definitely not to uh, do aggressive competition. Um, you know, it's actually to raise prices and then just sit with your, <laughs> you know, monopoly profits. And um, so that there could be major consumer harm that comes from this sort of cross-holding issue. Um, so I think there's another piece of this that I'm, I'm thinking about now with a co-author, which gets back to that sort of market structure conversation we were having, which is when we have these three big actors um, that hold 80% of the market, um, and it seems really difficult for an entrant to break in that would ever disrupt that lock. And then now they're acting as regulators, um, you know, that gets to what's checking this. Um, is there, is there enough, uh, are there enough forces to check, uh, what they're doing in this sort with this sort of regulatory power. Um, so, you know, that again, I'm, this is something I'm thinking through with a co-author now. Um, uh, and hopefully this will be the subject for um, my second podcast with you. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. You, uh, um, so, so let's make it official. We'll talk about the, that paper once it's ready. Uh, but, but for now I wanted to thank you again, Dorothy, this was a really a uh, fascinating conversation, especially for someone like me who's uh, really ignorant <laughs> about uh, a lot of the realities of uh, corporate practice. So thank you so much. Thank you, Felipe. It was a lot of fun.